Welcome everybody to Monday Night Chat Show. My name's uh, Derek Arden and today I'm delighted to have the subject of money laundering. And with me, I've got Paul Coleman. Paul's an old friend of mine. We met a number of years ago and I saw him speak at the Golden Gate Breakfast Club in San Francisco. And I immediately asked him to come on our show. Money laundering is something we all need to understand because as you will learn from Paul later on in the, um, in the interview, it, we are surrounded by it. It's happening everywhere and it's in our backyard. In fact, that's the title of one of Paul's talks, not in my backyard. So we're going to talk about the history of money laundering. We're going to talk about where we are now and we're going to talk about what's going to happen in the future. In other words, the title, not in my backyard. But Paul, you work for Barclays and you were inspector. And I remember you telling me that you were in Dingwall Road, Croydon. And I remember Dingwall Road, Road, Road Croydon because I had to go there for one or two interviews or telling off by, uh, by a local director. And it's a pretty miserable place. And I think it was in January, wasn't it, when you suddenly got a phone call um, to go to the Turks and Caicos Islands. First of all, tell us a little bit about that. Well, thanks, Derek. Thanks for inviting me to do this talk. Yeah, um, that was quite, a, there was a lot of chance involved there, to be honest, because for those of us who've been in Barclays and re will remember in the, in the sort of early 1990s, definitely, you had very little control over your, your, your career completely. You, you, it was almost like waiting for the, the, the phone to ring. Um, but anyway, I think because this was a little bit more um, different from just transferring around in, in the UK, I remember the regional inspector saying, oh, there's a job in, in uh, Barclays in the Bahamas as resident inspector. And literally the, the, the story to this is for two days, I, I mean, I, I hadn't long been moved down to London. I was a corporate manager in Edinburgh. And then for two, two days, I didn't say anything at home. I, I, and I just sort of said, to my wife, well, there's a chance of working in uh, in in Bahamas, but I said, you know, the usual thing that all the families people say, you know, whether children's education, it's big upheaval and such. I and of course, what she said to me was, well, you should try and get it, which rather took me by surprise. So anyway, I did. I I went for an interview in in London, up in uh, where the the chief inspector's office was, and I actually got the job. And the classic thing is, I called my wife, in those days, no mobile phone, so I find a phone box, called my wife and said, I've got the job. And what was her first reaction? I didn't think you would get it. And uh, so that was a bit of a blow, really. And uh, now my ex-wife, if I say that, but uh, anyway, that's 20 years ago, so I, I can't, um, you know, there's no hard feelings at all. But uh, it's just one of those things. But the, the point about Croydon was my last day working in, in, uh, in the UK, when I, what the last inspection we were doing was it in uh, Croydon, at the, the main office of Barclays, which is a huge office. We seem to have been there for a long time, but I remember walking out for lunch in that classic cold day in, in, in you know, early, well, no, I was going to say early spring. No, it's not really. It's middle of the winter. Cold, damp, raining, just miserable. I remember thinking, well, the next time I'm going to work, it's going to be a little bit different. I didn't know what, what to expect going as an expatriate to Bahamas. But uh, anyway, off I went. And uh, I've been there, apart from a short uh, term back in the UK in the early 2000s, ever since. So um, how do we start this today? What I, want, I want to start with one figure, a piece of information for you, a little known fact is, if I said to you $91 million, $91 million, let's think of that. Now, $91 million is the amount of money 
that by the time I finished, we finished this presentation, will have been laundered somewhere in the world, $91 million in about an hour or so. Wow. So that, that really puts the scale of it because we can talk about how many trillions of dollars are laundered, but you know it's hard to imagine trillions. But what we can do is imagine, if we could, 91 million, a lot of noughts, but there we are. Um, so as, as Derek said, I want to talk about the why, the what, and when of money laundering, the global response to, to, to crime, how we've got to where we are now with money laundering, and during that, we'll talk about some of the hows. We'll satisfy Will with the, one or two of the how to launder money. And I'm sure he's already got his pencil sharpened on this. And then, as Derek said, not in my backyard. This is a big thing at the very end that we'll talk about, is that it's closer than what you think. The, 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 de the general approach to this is, well, yeah, that's all very interesting, but it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It's not my world. It doesn't happen here. But I think by the end, we might... Be able to might, might be able to convince you that it's a little bit closer than you think about. So when did money laundering start? Whether well, the, 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 the romantic point is that everybody thinks it's Al Capone in the, in the time of the prohibition. That that is a false story. It is. It sounds good, but it's not Al Capone because for a start, as you all know, he's a gangster at the time of prohibition in Chicago. But there was no laws against money laundering, so he couldn't be prosecuted. Actually, Al Capone went to prison because of um, tax evasion. That was his crime, no money laundering. But even, uh, and, and the other point, of course, he had all these washeteriers, that's the, the story. Well, that's full of coins. A lot of money in coins is not much use to anybody. But anyway, the romantic point is Al Capone. 1982 was when it began to, start to, to develop the concept of money laundering. And that was the time of the first prosecution in the US. And it was laundering drug, the proceeds of drugs. So that was where it, it sort of began. And we always have associated money laundering with drug trafficking. But what really brought it to our, our attention, really? Globalization of business really in the 80s and 90s really took off. And we know that, you know, in trade finance, businesses, finance, whatever. And at the same time, of course, criminals started globalization. They're very ingenious criminals. We know that. And they, they started cross-border crimes. And there was this explosion of crime and a different type of crime in terms of cross-border, as opposed to, as we all, all the people from the UK will know, for example, the Craig brothers sort of dominated the, the east end of London, but it was very neat and con confined. They were in charge there, but they didn't really spread very far and certainly not cross-border. And this created law enforcement with a real challenge the, the days of the, you know, the Sherlock Holmes with the magnifying glass and Colombo, that approach was not getting to where they wanted to be in terms of solving crime. So they had to have a rethink. And there was a rethink because what emerged from this, particularly with the globalization of crime, was that huge amounts of money were being made by these Mr. Big. And that's the important thing about thinking about money laundering. Our image is the man on the street corner with, with you know, selling the drugs and with a bit of cash and as you see on, on, the, on, on the TV programs. Yes, that happens. But those guys are the fall guys. They disappear. They, if, if they get caught, there's another one there the next day. So, but it's Mr. Big who masterminds it, who doesn't get anywhere near the front line, is making the huge amounts of money. And law enforcement and policymakers came up with this idea that if we can stop 
the criminals enjoying the fruits of their illicit activities, we might actually stop crime. And this is where money laundering came into play, really. With it's, it's really to try and stop the crime by taking the money away from them. So we had this concept that, you know, follow the money developed. And that's where they looked at the criminals and said, well, what are they doing with this money? And we developed that concept a little bit more in a minute, but follow the money, then the very clear understanding that organized crime, the Mr. Biggs of this world, want to clean their money. And why do they want to clean their money? Because they don't want to be associated with their crime. They need to spend that money. They're no different from you and I who want the big house, the big car, the, the great holidays, the condominium on the beach and Turks and Caicos, you name it, that's possible. That's what you want. But the, the challenge is he needs clean looking money because he can't, he can't substantiate how he got his money. So they, they talked about this. This is, this is the use of money that you can't explain, unexplained wealth. And that developed the concept of money laundering because they had to make it look clean. It will never look, it never will be clean, but it, it needs to have this appearance of being clean money come from a legitimate source. Important thing is they, they money laundering started up as a piece of, piece of uh, activity that could be prosecuted against, but it doesn't happen on its own. It has to have an underlying crime. And the, the analogy really is that you've got ice and water. You can't have ice without water. You can't have money laundering without an underlying crime. Now, if we think of, we refer to it as proceeds of crime. If you think proceeds of crime, how many crimes develop, generate proceeds? In fact, most of them, they develop some sort of wealth for somebody. So that was where it started off. By 1989, OECD formed a, 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 a subbody, Financial Action Task Force, which was formed as a standard setter for anti-money laundering. They had, and they produced what they referred to as their 40 recommendations at that time to tackle money laundering. Interestingly, they call them recommendations. Over 200 countries have, are now signed up to comply with these recommendations, but they're recommendations only because governments are asked to tailor your laws around the recommendations. It's not a one size fits all. They don't write laws. They just give you recommendations about what you, how you've got to go about it. So, they, so the point was that the standard set has started, they made the 40 recommendations and different countries started to implement the most. Um, and we go back to the, the problem with the, 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 the criminal has. I just want to emphasize this. Whenever he touches a financial institution, he's vulnerable to being caught. Why? Because as the part of the development of anti-money laundering regimes in countries, you began to ask questions. We all have experienced it sometime in our lives, I'm sure, but that when the bank might say, what's this, you know, $200,000 that has come or 200,000 pounds that has come in your account. Nice to think you have, and it's a question, and it's a lot of pushback. What's it got to do with you, Mr. Bank? It's my money. Well, that has become very, very commonplace. If we think about our financial habits, most of us have a pattern. Now we might have a business with regular income. We might have a salary with regular 
salary, but it follows a pattern. It doesn't change around by huge amounts without being questioned. So the, the point is that the vulnerability comes because when in our lives we might inherit from our parents, we might, we might sell a business you know, at a, a huge profit, we can do things like that, downsizing properties as we get older and we release a lot of cash. So we, we but the, there are patterns and of course you never sell a business or you never, never prove a will without lawyer and without an accountant perhaps for a business. So you can never, you're going to have evidence of how you do it. The challenge is the criminal can't produce the evidence. Because Paul, I'm just going to, I'm just going to come in there. Um, the history is very interesting, but a lot of banks, re even recently, have been fined all sorts of money for uh, not asking the right questions. HSBC only last year, I think, uh, almost a billion pounds. Um, um, should we move into that area, or should you, you just want to finish off this? No, I, I can I can mention it now because I can bring into this whole concept of, of criminals and being asked and asking questions. They're not criminals when they walk through the door to be a customer. But by asking the questions, then it's difficult for the, and it's all about this unexplained wealth. Now, the, the Financial Action Task Force reg, uh, recommendations are appointed towards governments. Governments make the legislation, and the, and the, and the, and the banks then have to try and then the banks then have to manage this and produce their procedures to match the regulations, the legislation in place. Now, let, let me give you a good example because. Uh, you say that banks get fined for non-compliance. Yes, they do, because the, the, the Financial Action Task Force does its own evaluations. And I'll digress a little bit to say that the, the most recent Financial Action Task Force evaluation of the United Kingdom, they came out the best country in, in, against all the countries. There was about 107 who've had these, what they call mutual evaluations. Why are they mutual evaluations? You are evaluated against your peer countries. You join along with other assessors and you go to one country. The United Kingdom is, is one. Now that they, they, they had their evaluation, came out top, but they were top of a bad bunch. The secretary of, of the, the Financial Action Task Force says, we're all bad, all countries are bad, but some are less bad than others. That's where you put the United Kingdom because we all know that the reputation that the United Kingdom has is that it's seen as a safe haven for Russian oligarchs. It seemed as it's, it's in London, a huge amount of property. In fact, Chatham House, which is an, an advocacy group, has just recently sent, issued an article which he said, and I say this only factually, not without any, any commentary about Nigerians, but in, the, in London, there apparently is over uh, $400 million prop, uh, dollars of property invested by Nigerians in 800 properties throughout London. Now that's enormous. That's, and as I say, that's the inward flow of money. Now, this is where due diligence, as you say, asking the questions falls down because are the questions deep enough? Are the questions searching enough? Are the questions getting verification or are they just doing a tick box process? And some of the banks, not surprisingly, because it's it can be time consuming. It gets away in making of making money, but the fact is, it also if you don't do it, it hits your bottom line anyway. So that's where we are in in terms of that, Derek. It's a yes. It sounds good, 
Financial Action Task Force have their recommendations, but recently they've changed their evaluations to say, well, yes, we know you've got all the law, but are you doing it? Paul, I want to ask you then, hang on a minute. So when I go to buy a house uh, or uh, play around on the property market, I have to go and see a lawyer um, to identify myself every two years or something and take my passport. So how can these people, you know, buy 80 properties in London or buy a football club or, uh, you know, uh, things that they want to do, um, etc.? I don't get it at all. Well, OK, so the early days of... Uh, of, of uh, doing what we call due diligence or know your customer, the early days of that. What happened was the first thing we can remember, I can remember this when it was first introduced in, in Barclays, when I was a corporate manager, you had to identify them. And this is this whole process of, of getting a passport, address confirmation, and they're factual in pieces of information. You've got that. That's just a starting point. The danger is many practitioners is it's the finish, but it's not the finish because it is about what is your source of funds? What is your source of wealth? What have you do? What have you done to collect that money that can buy that level of property? And this is a bit of a judgment, but you can still say, well, what happened? And you talk about the lawyers and you say, well, yes, they, their questioning should be. There's a lot of nuances there. I mean, you can, you can pick it up as well, can't you? But let's be honest, a con man dresses like this, doesn't he? He doesn't dress, you know, with... Um, you know, very casually and looking very scruffy and have con man on his thing. Think something like Bernie Madoff. Think how many people he confused with what he did. Con men are good. And they, they, they will tell the story and, and they will convince you. And that's why you need evidence and such. And yeah. Derek, I just want to point about the lawyers, not lawyers in particular, but as the, as the Financial Action Task Force re uh, recommendations grew, it was first started with, with with, uh, with the banks and said, well, banks should monitor transactions. And all, those of us who worked in the bank know that might, might remember all these reports that, that we used to get. I know as an inspector, we used to have to check that they were doing it, ticking them off and with all these in order because it's they're looking for unusual activity. Um, then this whole thing developed because it was determined that there's a lots of people who, who should be regarded as financial institutions. And there were lawyers, accountants, real estate agents. And I'm sure um, anybody from the US will, will raise their eyes out when they say real estate agents, because the UK is quite a long way beyond where they are in the US about real estate agents and how they, they have to do their own due diligence, even though they don't handle money. The lawyer handles the money because it goes through its client account. But there another point of intelligence that can be obtained when you're talking with that client. And if it's suspicious, you are in the UK, the legislation, and I would say in, in the British overseas territories like, like Turks and Caicos, you are required to report that to the authorities, that it's suspicious. That we're not investigators in the bank. I, I, I pressed the point with that. We're not investigators, but you know how I mentioned unexplained wealth? It's, it's they, you can't get a good story. You can't get the evidence, so it's suspicious and you hand it over to uh, law enforcement. The new the legislation will say, if you, if, it's a if you fail to report when you should do, when it's obvious, and this goes into court and it's a decision of the court, it's a criminal offense to fail to report. So, and you could go to jail for failing to report. So, but it has captured all these, what we would regard as people on the edge and, and a huge amount of pushback when that started, lawyers, 
pushback. In the US, with great respect to Tim, lawyers have pushed back, real estate have pushed back. They're not, theirs is voluntary. Okay, so Paul, Paul, this is this is this is a bit of a mess, but uh, let's um let's go to where we are now. Will couldn't open a charity bank account uh, the other month. Um, all the banks refused. That seems nonsense. Charities don't launder money, do they? Well, okay, <laughs> I see. Will Will is now now smiling, but uh, well, what what happened was non-profit, as we call them, non-profit organisations as also known in the UK as charities, I, I have been used to transfer money to what we would regard as war-torn countries, like Syria and such like. Now, so in, in reality, the financing of terrorism is almost like money laundering in reverse. It's not bad money being made good, it's good money for a bad purpose. Now, so, and I, and I acted as an expert witness in a, in a case in, in the UK against Nat, it was civil action against Nat, Nat West Bank, and this was about 2001, where the people who, the families of those who were killed in a terrorist act in Syria were, were sued Nat West Bank because they failed to ask the right level of questions in a non-profit organization, substantial non-profit organization, that's what I've got to make the point, who said they were collecting money for, for a children's hospital but the money went to finance terrorism. Now I say that, now the reality of what's happened here is that that recommendation is non-profit organizations um, could be used to finance terrorism. Financing terrorism is, well, let me, let me just tell you, not every, the Lawn Tennis Club is not gonna finance terrorism, but there was an overshoot of the, the recommendations, there was an overshoot of the legislation, and then in consequence, the banking sector they introduced this whole concept. They didn't introduce it, but it's now called what they call de-risking. They said, hey, wait a minute. We're not, we don't want to get involved in, in possible financing the terrorism. Now, that was never the intention. That's an unintended consequence of the recommendation, the legislation. It was never intended as a widespread thing. It was intended to say, do your due diligence, work out, are they sending money overseas? Do the owners of, well, all right, the, the leaders of the nonprofit organization do the right checks when they're sending substantial money, which is the, the, the expert witness work I did, substantial money to a war-torn country? Are they really sure where the money goes to? Now, that's at one end of the scale. The other end of the scale is, you know, the, the lawn tennis club, et cetera, et cetera. And, but the banks have just batched it all together and say, we don't want those. And hence the problem. Wow, wow, the, wow. The consequence of the problem is, is uh, uh, sorry, Derek, the consequence of the problem is the, the activity goes underground. Money will still be transferred out of the country. It goes underground using, and, and if you've heard of one of the most popular ways, it's Hawala, used in, the, in Asia and the Middle East, of sending money overseas. No records, no information, as opposed to money being sent through money service businesses or wire transfers when there's a huge amount of information. So this overreaction from the bank ends up with a, the situation that, that Will's got, well, we're not going to do it. Or it goes to a bank that's not very sophisticated and not very experienced in these things. Mm, it's, real, it's a real issue, isn't it? And uh, I don't know how anyone checks uh, on, on charities because there's so many, there are so many char charities. This is a, a real area. But to Paul, um, you said not in my backyard. And when we discussed it, you said there's probably somebody money laundering 
Derek, a, a mile from your house. That's what you told me. And then I thought about it. Can you expand on that a bit more? Yeah, I can. Um, let me start with a rhetorical question. Some of you in the audience will have experience in their own, in, within their own family, perhaps sadly, of a family member who's died of a drug overdose, uh, using drugs and, and got it all wrong. Or you may well have a family member who has a, a daughter or a niece who's become associated with the wrong sort of crowd and she's hanging around with them or she runs away from home. Those people are, are rife for being manipulated into what we call human trafficking. Now, human trafficking is a $150 billion industry. And I go back to the point at the very beginning, this is the underlying crime. To use that money, to be able to spend that money that the organizers, $150 billion money spread around the world, you've, you've got to have some way of, of, of confusing people, but you're also, you, you have a vast empire of how, it's like, I mean, it's like big large corporate business about how human trafficking works with distribution channels and such. Point about human trafficking, it's not just Asia. It's not just Asia, it's not just Africa, the Middle East or whatever. Many, many people in, in, uh, who get caught up in human trafficking are from the same country. You can, you can picture the, the situation that used to happen many, many times. I know from the Northeast, the train, you, can, you, you know, young girls come off the train at King's Cross, nowhere to go, run away from home, and they're picked up very easily by supposed friendly people, and they will be forced into human trafficking. They will be trafficked. And human trafficking is forced labor. It is, it's, it's slavery, modern-day slavery. We thought, we thought slavery had been stamped out years ago. It still exists. Now, now, again, you're probably saying, yes, this is all, you know, somewhere different. Now, there's an advocacy group called Polaris from the United States, which does a huge amount of studies into human trafficking. They identified 25 different types of industry that uh, uh, tend to be used for traffickers, by traffickers, put people into forced labor in there. That's not to say they all do. It's like any crime. It doesn't, it's not 100%. But some of the, the, and this is where it gets very close to home, because if you've ever been to a nail salon, you use a car wash, you use landscaping, you, you know about agriculture uh, uh, trade in, in, in the summer and the fishing, where you can get people who come across and perhaps, and most likely, if they're from overseas, they come legitimately. It's not all about illegal migrants. It's about people come in perhaps with a, a, a study, or perhaps to be a nanny, and they're tricked in their home country. And believe me, if you come from Asia to the UK, you don't come from Asia to the UK, you go from one country to the next, and there's a handoff, money changes hands, money is made, all this way, they eventually get to the UK, their passport is taken from them, so they can't escape, and they into forced label sex, sexual exploitation or just domestic servitude. You've got to do that. You work 18 hours a day. You live in deplorable conditions. And typically, it's regarded as a, as, a, as a crime that's very difficult to get caught because the victims don't want to put their hands up. Very difficult. They can't move around. They're supervised they're, they're, and such like. And secondly, it's, it's, you, you're not going to get caught. It's very profitable. Victims don't want to because they either have violence against them in this country, wherever you are, or they have violence against their families in the, in the 
their, their home country. Very difficult, but there are ways. And the banks are talking, there are, there are helplines, and I can leave a helpline in, in the chat. But you see this, the car washes, the nail salons, lots and lots of people, uh, and, and they may well be trafficked. As they're very rife, and there's 25 types of country, five, 25 types of industry that fall in that category, very innocent looking businesses we see every day. Wow. Wow. In the high street. Paul, what do you do? Uh, final question, really, before we uh, throw the chat box open uh, to any questions. Um, what do you do in the Turks and Caicos Islands to um, help stop this? I mean, I think the Turks and Caicos is part of the uh, British Virgin Islands, BVIs, a lot of companies registered there. Um, gee whiz, you're sitting in the middle of money laundering heaven, aren't you? I was I, I wasn't well, supposed to ask you that question, but uh, I'll put you on the spot. Well, I, yeah, let, let me just uh, give it ever so quick uh, uh, response to that. When I went back to the UK uh, in the early 2000s, I thought, having been in the Turks and Caicos, I would try and talk about money laundering in the UK. And the first person I remember talking to at a cocktail party, I mentioned the Caribbean, and immediately his eyes glazed over and said, isn't that where they launder the money? The fact is, it's everywhere. Every country has its own issues. Well, and let me just talk, geographically, it's not, it's not fair for you, but... We are, Turks and Caicos is a, is a British overseas territory. British Virgin Islands is its own British uh, overseas territory. So we're two different countries. But you're absolutely right. The Caribbean islands have made their money by, uh, by, develop, by forming companies. And companies, use of companies is one of the ways in which the criminal can hide his wealth. But, um, but so what's my role in the, in the Turks and Caicos Islands? I was a regulator. Going back to your point, early on that yes, the banks and the financial institutions are not good at complying with the legislation because of this sort of denial bit, you know? Uh, and so as a regulator, we would do on-site examinations, such as you've talked about with, with, with uh, penalties. Then when I went into retirement, I am now a consulting with companies, financial businesses, how to become compliant. And it's it's situations such as this that it tries to break down this well it's 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 not for me you know that or and the 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 characteristic that everybody talks about to me many many times is well i've known this client for years he's a good guy well bernie madoff was a good guy you know so it's not that simple if it was that simple we wouldn't have any bad guys would we we they'd all be in jail so that that's my role now is to try and uplift the quality of compliance Fantastic, Paul. There's a few questions in the chat box that I'm going to come to Thank now. And I expect they're difficult ones, but uh, from Nigel, how effective is graph data science? You can tell he works at university, can't you? And machine learning in the fight against money laundering, including policing the dark websites. Yeah, uh, well, um, OK, nice question. I, I, what I can say is there is a lot of um, machine learning and, and AI uh, being worked on by the banking sector in, in, uh, for transaction monitoring to try and formalize that. Because at the moment, transaction monitoring is about making alerts of, of out of character. So you might have rules in there that say you, there's, there's a transaction 20% larger than your normal thing. But it, then it ends up with a human having to look at it. Many, many false positives. So uh, beyond that, so AI will help that process. We'll, but at the end of the day, this judgment still has to be made how it's suspicious. Regarding the dark web, I, I let me let me say 
I probably know as much as uh, about dark web as you know, not many people really. I am no expert, other than to say law enforcement won't be away from that. In the same as cryptocurrency, there's definitely evidence of, of it moving that way, but uh, it is a job. It is, uh, and, 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 and as we've talked more than one occasion, the criminals under the next thing now. You know, we think, ah, cryptocurrency. Well, yeah, thanks very much, but they're doing something different. That is the next question, cryptocurrency and uh, Bitcoin. And, uh, um, you know, once you've got a Bitcoin, it's untraceable, isn't it? It's, about like, it's a bit like those gold bars in the old days. Well, OK, I, I would think that, that the way I look at it is it's definitely on the agenda. It's definitely on the agenda. It, and there's definite evidence, so I, as I read, that cryptocurrency is being used to move what we call value its value and it's used by terrorist organizations and such. The, inter the jury is still out about and the amount I've read, the jury is still out to the, the amount, they will tell you, the people behind cryptocurrencies, that there is some form of, of, of tracing back to individuals. So, but significantly more complex and significantly harder to, to investigate. But so but what we have got is, let's remember on cryptocurrency, at the moment, most purchases of cryptocurrency are for investment. You know, people say, oh, I'll have some of that because it's almost like, the way I look at it, it's like any currency. You can't buy a house with cryptocurrency. So if the rates of moving around, just as if you, you said, I'm going to save all my money in euros, and the exchange rate changes, and wham, you've lost a third of your, yeah, your value. Well, so, you know, it's early days, definitely on the radar screen. But I uh, beyond that, the, the Financial Action Task Force have written numerous guidance on that. It's in its formative years, but uh, interesting to see where that would develop. Okay, and from Nigel, are, are county line gangs, are they actively involved in money laundering? Definitely. They, 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 they have to be. I mean, their sort of modus operandi is, you know, if you generate proceeds, you've got to launder it. So there will be, but they'll be very sophisticated at it, um, fast moving. Um, but yeah, but dependent upon the financial sector in reporting and disclosing unusual activity. But it's uh, it's it's a fight. Yeah, and uh, Nigel tells us there's plenty of bent lawyers imprisoned at uh, Ford Open Prison, and Godfrey tells us uh, investigating bent lawyers is one of the most uh, difficult things to do as a private investigator uh, and accountants as well. We got one or two accountants on here. So uh, just in case they're uh, thinking they're gonna get off scot-free. Well, the res their responsibilities are very clear and, and the courts will uh, judge if you if you were part of it. And and there is a very small group of people who, who are not criminals to the extent of, of doing the bad deeds, but they are professional money launderers. They will assist, make it known that they will assist this sort of activity because turning, turning a blind eye, you know, willful blindness as we refer to it. Mm. But that's, so there's always, well, there's always, every, every small town has a jail, don't they? There's always some bad guys. Paul, that's been a um, fascinating subject. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna close it down now and then throw it open to people who are off the recording. But uh, Paul Coleman, thanks for joining us from the Turks and Caicos Islands. That's uh, absolutely fascinating. Bit of an eye-opener, actually, that uh, the, the uh, car wash down the road could be uh, assisting 
money laundering and there could be people there against their own will. That worries me slightly. But if you're watching this on YouTube or the Negotiators podcast, you can Google Paul at uh, Paul Coleman. Paul, thanks very much indeed. The usual uh, round of applause for Paul, please. And uh, thanks very much indeed. Thank you.